0: Well, as most of you know, we are in the midst of a, or beginning a season of transition here at Sanctuary as we look ahead to the likely closing of the Green Bean. This has been a core part of our identity as a church for as long as we've been a church. So this is going to be a sizable transition that we're going through. And in the midst of this season, it is natural that we be asking questions about what What are you calling us to, God? What's next? Um, What do you want us to do? And so as we were thinking about this fall and knowing that these conversations were going to be coming, um, Mark decided that taking some time looking at the early church would be helpful for us um, because there are a lot of things that we can learn from the early church, who, like us, um, was a community without a building. Um, who was a minority voice in a much different culture that they lived in, um, and who were experiencing a lot of different pressures from the outside. And so we are walking through the book of Acts together this fall, and that is kind of the lens that we're viewing it through. Um, How did the early church live? What can we learn from the early church about how to be Christians in our world? Um, And so that we can be kind of reflecting on this question of, Lord, what are you calling us to? as a community, in this next season. So last week, we were in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and Randy was looking with us at the story of Pentecost. So this is the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. Um, And Randy asked the question, he asked us to imagine that we had the same thing happen to us, that the Holy Spirit were to descend on us in all of its power. And he asked, what would that be like? That's a great exercise, and the, question, the thing that immediately popped into my mind was, but Randy, that has happened. That is happening. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, I mean, that's where he was going. Um, but we, like the early believers, um, we have a hard time dwelling in that reality in the day-to-day. It's not a one-and-done deal, being indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit that that reality is something that we have to be coming back to day after day after day in order to truly experience all that the Holy Spirit wants to offer us in this life. And so we really have to be tireless and intentional in rooting and re-rooting ourselves consistently, frequently, daily in the Holy Spirit, in the truths of scripture. And so our passage today gives us a window into the life and the practice of the early church. And I'm excited that I get a chance to look with us at it today because the practices that that they engaged in then, that were transformative for them, that drew thousands and thousands of new believers to the church, um, that were life-giving to the early Christians, have not changed. And they are still available for us. They are still Promising to give life to those who settle themselves into these ways of life, these routines. And as we'll see in this passage, one of the key elements in that early church is that the believers were together, right? Randy gave the image of a fire last week, which is an easy one for us to get our minds around. We've all sat around campfires, probably this summer, maybe this weekend. And you know that when you gather, you have to gather the logs together in order to get that fire going, right? As soon as you scatter the logs, the fire goes out. And that is a spiritual reality as well, that there's something about being together that keeps us, that keeps the fire going, that keeps us on fire, that keeps us rooted in the truths of the gospel story. So, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2, just a little bit after where Randy was looking with us, and, and what we have skipped over, which is a bummer because it's beautiful, um, is a really powerful sermon that Peter gives to all of the folks from around the world who have gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and who, they're looking at the disciples who have just received the Holy Spirit, who are talking in all these different languages, and they think, man, I think you guys are drunk. Something is going on. And Peter then begins to address them and explain what is going on. And it is this powerful, compelling kind of walk through history to help these people see that Christ, whom you have just crucified, is the Messiah who has come to save you. Repent. And thousands of people repent in that moment. And the first thing they ask is, what do we do now? What shall we do? So that is the question that is immediately preceding these verses that we're going to look at. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 42. Let me just flip my notes here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. One more thing. 3,000 people came to faith as a result of this sermon that Peter just gave. So they have just grown Um, from an intimate community of 120, 120, to 3,000, all right? So it's it's this huge mass of 3,000 who are gathering together, all right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts this morning to what you have for us today. As we sit with this question, what shall we do? Lord, enliven our minds and our imaginations, direct our eyes towards the things that are most pressing for this community today. What shall we do, Lord? We ask for your leading. Amen. Well, this passage is one that the church throughout the ages has turned to as um, a template for, for how we should do church. And the irony is that every church that has modeled themselves after this passage looks very different, right? There's There's so many different ways that this can play out. Um, But the reality is that the church has tended to idealize um, this picture of church. Um, And for good reason. There's clearly a lot of powerful stuff happening uh, in the early church and in these gatherings um, that were taking place at this time. But when we idealize this passage, we tend to forget the context um, just before this, right? That the early believers drew into these tight enclaves, huddled in one another's homes for a reason. Part of it was the power um, of the Holy Spirit that was drawing them together, but part of it was just the reality of fear. Think back over what the early church has just experienced. This um, incident of Pentecost happened 50 days after the Passover. So we are less than two months after Jesus was arrested Betrayed by one of the inner circle, crucified, rose from the dead. I mean, talk about emotional swings, right? And then they've just watched him be raised up into heaven, and they are left. Their families, their friends, the religious leaders that have been their mentors throughout most of their lives are suddenly not to be trusted. These are the people who are looking askance at the early believers now, who have just crucified their leader. There is a lot of reason to fear in these early believers. And so for this reason, as well as others, the early believers come together. They huddle for safety, for security. Now, the blessing and the curse of the Reformed worldview is that we tend to look at the world that we are a part of through rose-colored glasses often, that we believe that God is active and alive and at work throughout all of creation, and that everything that is good in the world around us is a result of the Spirit of the Lord at work. And so we can go out into the city of Seattle and we can enjoy it. And we love it. And we embrace culture because God is at work in it. And all of this is true. Seattle is an amazing city. I was reading in the paper this week that we are the third highest city in the country now for people making over $200,000 as a family unit. People are flooding here because of the opportunities uh, to advance in career. Because of all of the new development that's happening, you pick a neighborhood and there are amazing restaurants and cafes and bars, and there's amazing music going on all over the city. We have sports teams that... I don't know. Are they doing well, Mark? Dad? I don't know. We have sports teams, right? People go to them. We watch them. I don't. I go and crochet while my family watches sports. This city has a lot to offer, a lot that is good. And I love that one of the defining qualities of our community, of the Reformed tradition, is that we can find the beauty in all of it. However, there is also a dark side to the world that we live in. And we experience this as well. Read the newspaper. um, But we, we experience it on a much more personal level as well, if we take a moment to reflect on what our engagement with all of these good things is doing to us. We are too busy. We're too busy. Trying to schedule something with someone should not require a spreadsheet. And it does. We're too busy. We're running from thing to thing. We're frantic. And we wonder, why am I feeling anxious? Why am I depressed? The world around us is too loud. Every second of every day, there is input coming at us from every direction. And if it's not coming at us and we put in our earbuds and we find our favorite podcast or we surf on our phone and we read the news headlines, it is so loud. And it's good stuff. And yet all of that stuff puts us in a place where we are never able to connect with the one who created us, to hear that still, quiet voice that has something to say. We are isolated. We are getting crammed tighter and tighter together in this city, and yet we are isolated. We sit at home, and this is me talking about myself, I sit at home at my computer, and I surf the web, and I buy my stuff on Amazon because it's convenient. And then someone comes and delivers it to my door, and that's awesome. But I never have to get out of my house. I don't even have the interactions with the person selling me the item. And then if I do have to go to the store for something, because maybe I need something from the dollar store, I go in and I pop my debit card into the reader and I sit there and I stare at the reader the whole time rather than looking up and engaging with the person who's operating the other side of that computer. We are isolated. And the lack of boundaries and margins in our life that I think has just been facilitated by technology, we are constantly accessible, has led to this sense that we should always be productive. Our idea of what we need to achieve as an individual has just skyrocketed. And that has resulted in all sorts of mental and emotional illness. We go to whatever our quick fix is, whether it's food or pornography or you name your vice. This world is a beautiful world, and yet it brings us to really bad places. It's killing us. But unfortunately, Unlike the early church, who gathered together with fellow believers in the midst of that sense that they were unsafe, our tendency in the face of the challenges of life, in the face of stress, in the face of too many good things, is to jettison the church, to not carve out time for worship. And I'm totally preaching in the choir here. You guys are here, yay! We don't carve out time for the midweek gatherings, the touch points that keep us connected in the truth of the story that is ultimate truth. We don't take time in our own time for rhythms and rituals that will feed our souls, that will remind us of who we are and whose we are. Where's your Bible? Do you even know? (laughs) When was the last time that you sat and took even five minutes to be quiet? Our culture does not encourage us to do these things. And the result is that we end up disconnected and lonelier and busier than ever, and then we wonder why our faith is lukewarm. Well, the story of the early church offers us a better way. It suggests that Christian community, that gathering together with other believers Consistently participating in spiritually formative routines, not just, you know, going to the Y or whatever your physical fitness routine is, but spiritually formative routines, doing these things is not optional, but that these things are critical to our health. We tend to focus on physical elements, mental elements at the expense of spiritual well-being. We know that our habits and our routines shape us, right? Going to the gym, not getting enough sleep, getting enough sleep, prioritizing worship, prioritizing community, prioritizing time in the Word, eating well, practicing an instrument, all of these things, when they become routine, when they become habit, shape us. They make us into a different person. And just as we are shaped physically and mentally and emotionally by our actions, by our habits, our spirits are also shaped either by the routines that we put in place or by the liturgies that our world puts in place. In verse 42, Luke says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then a few verses later, it says that they gathered together daily in the temple courts for worship. So they devoted themselves to teaching. They were consistently looking at the truest of stories. Reminding themselves of the story that their stories fit into. The story of the Roman occupation is not the truest story. The story that God has come to conquer sin and death, and that because of that, they are saved. That is the true story. They devoted themselves to teaching around that story consistently, frequently, daily. They devoted themselves to fellowship, now, most churches have fellowship halls, right? We don't have a fellowship hall, but pretend like the lobby is our fellowship hall. And so we think, oh, fellowship. I go and I have a cup of coffee, I eat a brownie, and I chit chat with people in the lobby for 10 minutes before I head home. Well That is so far away from what fellowship truly is intended to be. Fellowship should be much more than simply getting together and drinking beer together or your beverage of choice. Fellowship is friendships that have Christ at the center. It's gathering together and digging down beneath the service of what you're doing to how are you doing. How is your soul? It's friendships that focus on encouraging one another, not just in life, but in faith, because they're not disconnected. Disconnected. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. That means communion. When the believers in the early church gathered, they would celebrate communion as a reminder of of Christ and his work on their behalf. But they also, every time they gathered, shared a meal together. And we know there's something that happens at a dinner table that is meaningful, that is special. That was a part of their rhythm. Prayer was a part of their rhythm, of their times together And worship. Every day, it says, they gathered in the temple courts. Now, that would exhaust me, so let's not do that every day. But it was a part of their rhythm. I came across a quote by G.K. Chesterton this week that says, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I like that. We tend to think about these spiritual practices, these disciplines, as rigid and and uncomfortable, and I just kind of want to bust out of them. But the purpose behind these disciplines is to open the door into a space where we have freedom to run wild with God in good places, in green pastures, So these practices were vital because it was these practices that kept their faith alive, that kept that faith, that fire hot. And then in verse 7, Luke says that as a result of this way of life and despite the hardships that the early church was experiencing, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the huge flood of believers that we read about in Acts 2, they're flooding into the church, was due in equal parts to the word proclaimed, to Peter's preaching and the other apostles' preaching, but also just to simply people witnessing the type of community that is happening when these thousand believers are gathering together. That it was beautiful. Simply witnessing their life together, the love that they shared. People were just coming And I think that we have experienced community that, that is that way, that is so beautiful that it draws people around us. A healthy Christian community attracts people to Christ. Now as conversations about the coming closure of the bean have happened recently, many of you have expressed concern that sanctuary not become an inwardly focused church. And I love that that is at the heart of this church. That we continue to be a community that reflects Christ and that is doing tangible things to spread the love of Jesus in our world. That's one of the things that drew me to this church 13 years ago. Well, it's more than that, building out the green bean. I could see that this was a community that wanted to have a physical presence in the neighborhood to love our neighbor. However, there have been seasons in this community where we have put so much emphasis on that external focus that we have started to get spiritually anemic. And I am as guilty of that as the next person. As we were rebuilding the green bean after the fire, my role was discipleship, and yet I was spending all of my energy reopening the green bean. And it's a good thing, and I'm so glad that we did it. But as a result of that, I wasn't putting enough time into nurturing the spiritual life of this community. And I think that we became anemic. And I know in myself that I have this tendency to swing like a pendulum. It's easier to be one or the other, to either be the social justice activist, like saving the world, or to be the spiritual director. I think I've said that. Maybe I said it up here. I kind of swing. I want to be all one or all the other. And I can be passionate in either area. But I think that a healthy church is a church that continues to hold both of those relentlessly and who refuses to let go of going deep in their faith while also going deep in our care and our engagement with the world. There are a lot of nonprofits in this city who are doing amazing work, providing services for people that need them. The unique thing about the church in that equation is that we offer Jesus, that we bring Jesus into all of those spaces. Christ's love, Christ's heart for justice, Christ's compassion, Christ's forgiveness. And so this means that first and foremost, as believers, we have to be rooting ourselves in Jesus. And that if we are not firmly rooted there and consistently feeding that relationship, Anything that we do then is coming from the wrong place. I have been in that space. I click into the social justice piece of me, and and I'm just off on that. And I run on summer's energy for a while, and then my energy's gone, and I realize, crap, (laughs) I'm done, and there's still so much more that needs to be done. And shoot, I could have done things in the right order and made such a bigger impact. We have been in a forever, never-ending conversation with council about our mission and vision statement as sanctuary. Um, and we are we are in it yet again. And this is Mark's language, and I'm just gonna psh, throw it out there. Um, so we've been trying to sit with who are we as a church and what is God calling us to in this next season? And as we look at children's ministry or the green bean or the preschool. Uh, people keep coming back to us from all of these different kind of teams that are looking at these different parts of, well, if you could tell us what the mission of the church is, we could sure make sure that we were doing the right thing in all these areas. And yes, we know that. And so we want to put some fresh language around the mission. What's the mission of sanctuary? So the current language that we're kind of sitting with is rooted in Christ for the flourishing of neighbor. Rooted in Christ for the flourishing of neighbor. I'm going to care for my relationship for Jesus first, and I'm doing it so that my neighbor can flourish. I'm not going to let go of those. we got to hold them both. And everything that we do as a church community needs to be judged by how it furthers that two-part calling. How does this help me love God better and love my neighbor better? Rooted in Christ for the flourishing of neighbor. We want Sanctuary to be a community that is going deep in both of those areas. But in order to be a catalyst for the flourishing in our world, we have to be flourishing first, right? If we are not first flourishing, and flourishing because of our rootedness in Christ, then we have nothing to offer when we go out into our various places throughout the week. And flourishing is not going to happen unless we are intentional. Intentional, 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 about embracing spiritual rhythms, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that counteract the unhealthy elements of this world that we live in. There's a little book that I love um, by Max Lucado called You Are Special. And it's about a bunch of little wooden people. And I've talked about it before. Um, But in it, this little wooden person is covered in gray dots that his fellow Wemmicks have stuck all over him. He encounters this beautiful Wemmick that has no dots. And he wants to know, how is it that you have no dots? She's like, I go see Eli the woodcarver every day. Well, Punchinello doesn't get that. She's like, just go see Eli. And so Eli begins to go to the woodcarver each and every day. And he sits there, and the woodcarver simply says, you're special because I made you, and I don't make mistakes. And Punchinello's like, well, I don't get that. And Neil's like, just come back tomorrow. And Punchinello walks out the door, and one of those gray dots falls on the floor. We are like Punchinello. We need daily connection with the one who made us to remind us, you are special because I made you. And I don't make mistakes. We need that daily interaction to confront and counteract all of the negative impacts of this world that we live in. What does that look like for you? If you're like me, there were certain practices that you grew up thinking of. And maybe those feel like not the right fit for you. Make it your own. Make it your own. Mark recently decided that one thing we were going to do as a family was that we were going to light a candle at dinner with the kids. And to just simply articulate, this candle reminds us that even though we cannot see him, God is with us always. I love that. So simple. But the kids look forward to it now, and they know what we say when we light it. That is getting ingrained in their brains. Henry Nowen has a a little essay on, what is it called, Mark? Solitude, Solitude community, ministry. Anyway, in it, he makes the comment that our brains are like banana trees full of monkeys jumping around. And it's true, right? And everyone's always trying to stick their monkeys in your tree. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. If we never take the time intentionally to be quiet, those monkeys never shut up. I have been that banana tree with the monkeys jumping around the last three weeks with my kids back in school. For the first time in a very long time, I have some hours that no one has told me what to do. Well, the first two weeks of that, I was running on overdrive. So much I had to get done, right? all my to-do lists, things I had to get done. And I got to the end of the day, and like my head is buzzing, and my heart is buzzing, and I've been drinking caffeine all day, and I just was like, "Bah!" <laughs> so finally, this week on Tuesday, I, well, I don't know what day it was, one day, my kids left. And I was like, screw the to-do list, man. I sat down on my orange chair, I lit a candle, and I set a timer for f- 15 minutes, and I just sat there. And it finished, and I was like, I'm not done yet. And I set it for 15 more minutes, 30 minutes, right? You're like, wow, what a luxury. I don't have 30 minutes. Yes, you do. It transformed my week. Half an hour, the beginning of the week, quiet. Why? Did I hear any profound voices? No. But something in that time reoriented me. Because I was with God. I wasted a little bit of time with God. Those monkeys quieted down and I realized that there was a whole bunch of stuff that really didn't matter so much. I said, you do not matter as much as this matters. We need that, you guys. There are gajillions of practices, and I have in the church office a handbook that's like, I don't know, 50 or 100 different practices. If you feel like you're stuck, and you do not know how to be intentional in your relationship with God come talk to me. I don't have all the answers, but I have books. And we'll look through the books, and we'll find one, and we'll try it out. And you might be surprised how it impacts you. Now, the early believers in this story are not going off into the little private prayer closet and having their spiritual moment with Jesus, right? It's community. It's together. That is not a culturally normal thing here in Seattle for us today. We like being able to go off in our little private closet with Jesus, and that is okay. But you set that as a goal and try to do it by yourself, and how long is it going to last? Until the first time your phone rings, until the first time your mind wanders, and you're off doing that other thing, and it's like, oh well, so much for that. That is why we gather together in community, you guys. Because we, our minds, are banana trees with monkeys jumping up and down. And we get distracted by those monkeys really easily. (laughs) We need each other to help draw us back to the true story that is the ultimate true story, to remind us that you are special because God makes you and he doesn't make mistakes. Turn off your phone. Come sit with me. Let's read the Bible for a minute. Let's remind ourselves why we are doing all the things that we are doing. That's why we have community. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings. I hope you were listening to the songs that we sang this morning. Because it is truth being pounded into your head. You may not love the melody. Sometimes we make you know a wrong note happen. Ah, doesn't matter. Listen to the words. Plug your ears and read it. <laughs> we come here to have a different narrative Blast it into our brains for a few minutes a week. And once a week is not enough. It's not enough. The world is loud. You go out and you have the next six and a half days to have this other narrative pounded into your head, and you're going to start believing it. It's not enough. You need a spiritual friendship that you are connecting with consistently. If it's not a community group, fine. Community groups aren't for everyone but come to community group, man, (laughs) come. Even community groups, I mean, you know, as amazing as they are, I think that we have tended to kind of devolve into our places of comfort, and I want to tell you that this year, I want to be intentional about re-imbuing them with some of the goals that we had initially set in place for them, because I want them to be places where we are practicing these transformative spiritual practices together where we are asking real questions, where we are truly asking, how are you doing? Not just what are you doing or what's going well, but like what's going on in your heart today. I want community groups to be like that, and I believe that they can be if you come and if you are real with who you are and with what you're struggling with. This is not a place to be all put together and perfect. It's a place to be real and to be encouraged by one another. Man, my, my notes are gone. But I am going to tell you this story. Henry Nowen heard this story from a friend. Once there was a little river, and the little river decided, I want to be a big river. And so it worked hard, but then one day it encountered a big rock. It's like, that's okay. the little river said. I am going to get around that rock. And it pushed, and it pushed, and it worked. And eventually, it got around that rock. But then soon, the river faced a mountain. But the river kept pushing and pushing, and eventually the river made a canyon and it carved away through those mountains. And the growing river said, I can do it. I am not going to let anything stop me. Now the river, a big, powerful river, came to the edge of an enormous desert with the sun beating down. And the river said, I'm going through that desert. But the hot sand soon began to soak up that river until that big river was nothing but a muddy puddle. But then the river heard a voice from above that said, just surrender. Let me lift you up. Let me take over. And the river said, here I am. And so the sun lifted that river, made that river into a huge cloud, and it carried that river right over the desert And then it let that cloud rain down on the fields on the far side. And those fields became fruitful and rich. There is a moment in life when we stand before the desert and we want to do it ourselves. But here is the voice that comes that says, let go. Surrender. Trust me. Give yourself to me. And I will make you fruitful. This is a community that cares deeply about justice. And the leaders of this community hear that cry. And we're going to continue figuring out ways for us to do that. However, unless we are first rooted in Christ, until we fully surrender to him, our efforts are going to be limited. We will quickly reach the end of ourselves. And so as we move forward to imagine how God wants to use us to love our neighbor in this coming season, let's also be tireless in our pursuit of going deep in Christ and surrendering to him. Amen? Amen.